All right, well, good morning, everyone. I want to get us started so we maximize our time with our speaker. So uh, last week, as you know, we had the pleasure of hearing from Matt Dennert at the Calvin Coolidge Foundation to kick off our three-part series on the presidency of our nation's 30th president, Calvin Coolidge. Today, we continue the series with our second speaker, and we're so pleased to have with us today Garland Tucker. Garland is a trustee of the Presidential Foundation, and he's also, notably, a Coolidge biographer. His book, The High Tide of American Conservatism, Davis, Coolidge in the 1924 election, was first published in 2010, and it's being reissued this year uh, for the centennial of that epic election, which we're going to hear all about. And I was going to say that copies are available in the back for purchase, but um, Garland tells me that Matt said last week that he thought about it and thought that selling books in the church might be like the money changers in the temple <laughs> and thought that might not be quite the right image, so they're gratis. So thank you very much, Garland, and thanks to the foundation for that. And it's right here, and I can't wait to read it like, like all of you. Uh, Garland is also the author of another book, and it's the more recent one, and it's titled Conservative Heroes, 14 Leaders Who Shaped America from Jefferson to Reagan. As if these distinctions were not enough, Garland has had a long and distinguished career in business. He's the retired chairman, CEO, and co-founder of Triangle Capital Corporation. He's the founder of First Travel Corp. He's a former senior vice president at Chemical Bank. And he's also the former president and CEO of Carolina Securities Corporation. And he's a former member of the New York Stock Exchange. He's a magna cum laude Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Washington and Lee University, and also a graduate of a striving business school called Harvard. <laughs> so with that, please join me in welcoming Garland Tucker. Thanks, Garland. You can stick this back in there if you want. It's up to you. I'll uh, put this here, and y'all can let me know if I'm not standing close enough to it. Let's see. <laughs> How does that sound? Y'all hear me okay? Good. Uh, Mark, thank you. It's a pleasure to uh, be with you all today. I, I was thinking about it when I got the invitation. Um, it reminded me that the it's the second invitation I've had to come to St. John's, but it, uh, they're uh, fairly far apart in years. The first one was in 1968 when I, <laughs> took me a long time to get back. Um, 1968, I was invited to come to a conference here that uh, your assistant director at that time, Peter Lee, was putting on for college students. And I had a great time at St. John's. And in the intervening years, uh, I've certainly walked by any number of times out front. This is the first time I've been invited back in. So thank, <laughs> thank you for, uh, for having me. Um, we're going to talk, uh, let's see, let me make sure I get the time right, uh, Clark. What time do we need to? Uh, 10.50. Okay, and we, we want to save some time for questions. Yeah, so, minutes, okay, all right, so I'll keep an eye on, I'll try to keep an eye on the watch. I, uh, oftentimes my wife is here to do that, and she's very, very good about it, but you all are, might have to suffer if I don't keep an eye on it myself. Um, I'm going to focus on the 1924 election, uh, which is... Um, well, I'll, t I'll tell you a little bit about why I decided to write the book. <laughs> yes. uh, uh, pardon? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, it's the 100th anniversary. Uh, 
I had gotten interested over the years in Calvin Coolidge and John Davis. John Davis was the Democratic nominee. And uh, somewhere along the way, it occurred to me that um, the only time that their lives intersected was 1924. Davis was the Democratic nominee, and Coolidge was, of course, the incumbent president. And I had also noticed over the years that Anytime I mentioned the 1924 election, I invariably got a totally blank look from people like, you know, who ran, you know, okay, Coolidge, uh, I think I know who that is, but who, who was Davis? I've never heard of Davis. So um, I decided that uh, after, you know, being in business my whole career that I would, uh, that I finally found a topic that at least nobody had written about. So if I wrote a book on the 1924 election, it would be the best book out on 2020. So uh, here it is. Um, what I want to do is, is, I guess, as any author, try to get you interested. First of all, get you uh, interested in picking up a free copy in the back, as, uh, as Clark said. Uh, and I'm very thankful to Matt Dennard for uh, deciding that because I guess I would have been the one thrown out today if uh, <laughs> if you had expelled the money changers from the temple. So uh, I'm glad we can give you a free copy. And uh, I want to hopefully get you interested enough in this that you would, uh, once you pick up the free copy, that you'd go home and, and uh, maybe read it. So I'm going to go through, try to go through sort of sequentially. I think the book is laid out, at least to me, pretty logically, chronologically. Uh, as it goes through, and I'm going to read you, to begin with, read you a couple of things that are in the, um, the current introduction or forward by Scott Walker. He says, um, uh, President Coolidge defeated John Davis, a Democrat from West Virginia, in this election. Both men believed in limited government, lower taxes, and individual freedom. Voters seemed satisfied to stay with the incumbent, but they appreciated the policies of both major candidates. And then from the forward of the, of the first uh, edition of the book, which uh, the D.C. columnist Fred Barnes, as some of you all might know or remember, uh, wrote this. Uh, he said, based on his popularity from having broken the Boston police strike, Coolidge was picked as Warren Harding's vice president running mate in 1920. When Harding died in 23, Coolidge became president. Davis was a Wall Street lawyer who had served in Woodrow Wilson's administration as Solicitor General and Ambassador to Great Britain. It took 103 ballots at the Democratic Convention before he won the nomination, which is still a record. We'll talk about that in, in a minute. Um, but, he says, there was something more to Coolidge and Davis, something that the book captures. They grew up in small towns, Coolidge in Vermont, Davis in West Virginia and were gentlemen admired for their personal integrity and unblemished morality. Coolidge was famous for being terse, silent cow, as I always remembered, and Davis was noted for his graciousness. They were neither mean-spirited nor, nor power-hungry. I cannot recall a presidential race in modern times between two such honorable men. And... I think that's sort of the starting point for, uh, at least for my thinking about this election, is uh, I suspect that most of you, when you will read a little bit about it, will be, um, will, will admit that you're kind of get a wave of nostalgia if you think about a presidential election where there were two 
men of the caliber of these two men. Uh, whether you agree or disagree with their politics really doesn't matter. I think you can recognize uh, in the quality of their personality something that uh, we all yearn for these days. So let me take you through the, the sequence. Uh, the book starts with an attempt to give you the setting of uh, 1920s uh, when the decade started. Uh, the, the country had been through World War I with President Wilson. Uh, uh, a lot of progressive legislation had been passed uh, under Wilson, and then the war effort, and the country was, was arguably pretty exhausted. And it, in the election of 1920, it took a turn to the right uh, with Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge, and Harding's famous comment was it's a return to normalcy, which uh, it turns out wasn't really a word, but everybody knew what he was talking about. And uh, that uh, the Republicans uh, won a big victory in 1920. And something that uh, most readers are not familiar with is that there was a severe recession in 1920 and 21, uh, going into 21. And unemployment reached 23%. Uh, GNP actually fell almost 20%. It was a very, very sharp recession. Um, but Coolidge, uh, but Harding and Coolidge came in, and their policies were to reduce, begin reducing taxes, reducing uh, uh, the scope of the government that had grown considerably during World War One. And the result was it was a very short but sharp recession, and then it started, the economy started pulling out very quickly. And the amazing growth of the 1920s started. Um, the, um, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion even today among economists about the 1920s and a question of, um, you know, was the... Uh, was it real growth? Uh, part of that, part of the question is generated by the fact that it was followed by the Great Depression years afterwards. And um, it's interesting to, to look at what some of the historians and economists have said. Uh, there's some pretty, pretty graphic language. Um, Alan Nevins and Henry Steele uh, Commenter have just have decried the decade as, quote, dull, bourgeois, and ruthless. William Allen White identified Coolidge forever as the Puritan in Babylon. Uh, intellectuals belittled, uh, often belittled the 1920s in such phrases as Edmund Wilson's, quote, a drunken fiesta, and Scott Fitzgerald's, quote, the greatest gaudy esprit in history. They saw Coolidge prosperity as ephemeral and were repulsed by what they saw as intellectual shallowness. Well, in stark contrast to that view, there are views by historians like Paul Johnson, uh, Amity Schlaes of the Coolidge Foundation, and any number of, of historians who say that what the 20s demonstrates was the relative speed with which industrial productivity could transform luxuries into necessities and spread them down the class pyramid. Economic facts indicate that prosperity was indeed more widespread and more widely distributed than at any time in American history up to that point. So those, 
there's a real debate about what happened in the 20s, but I think most historians and most economists would agree now that uh, the, the life of the average American was transformed during that decade, and it was because of the automobile, the radio, many of the inventions that uh, became widely available, and the fact that prices were very stable and there was strong economic growth. So that's the background going into uh, the 1924 election. Uh, Harding died in 23, uh, very unexpectedly. Coolidge, um, interestingly, was in Vermont at his parents' farm, a very uh, isolated place. I don't know whether any of you all have ever been to Plymouth Notch, Vermont. But uh, Clark and I were talked about it before, and it's really a great place to visit in that it's totally unchanged. I mean, it's exactly like it was when Calvin Coolidge was there. His, his parents' house is there, his father's store, the church, uh, a small cheese factory, and that's it. And you can stand there and look around, and you, uh, all you see is, is undisturbed uh, landscape in southern Vermont, which is very pretty, and it it gives you a, a very accurate feel of what it was like to grow up in this isolated area. Well, Coolidge was there uh, spending a, a few nights with his parents when word came that Harding had died, and his uh, 2 a.m. a messenger ran over from whatever the nearest town was. They didn't have a phone connection, and um, gave him the news that Harding had died, and Coolidge's father, who was a notary public, uh, swore Coolidge in at 2 a.m. in the morning. There's a famous painting of, of him taking the oath. And I love the, the story. Uh, his father, Colonel Coolidge, was kind of a quintessentially crusty old New Englander, and uh, he was asked the next morning, well, Colonel Coolidge, as notary public, are you authorized to administer the, uh, the presidential oath? And he said, well, nobody told me I couldn't. So, <laughs> so at 2, at 2 a.m. in the morning, I probably wasn't anybody around at Plymouth Notch to tell him that he couldn't. Um, so Coolidge was, found himself as president. Harding died. Uh, interestingly, uh, we all, modern readers, when they think of Harding, think of the scandals and you know, think that he was an unsuccessful president. Well, uh, that was not the vision of Harding by the average American at the time he died. The scandals were just, kind of, the Teapot Dome and several others were just coming out, and, but they hadn't permeated uh, the national scene, and most Americans, uh, in fact, there was an outpouring of grief when Harding died. Uh, it was likened to uh, Lincoln's death, and there were, there were people uh, in New York, all the major cities had huge displays of, of um, sympathy and grief when Harding died. And then Coolidge came in, and the, the scandals began to unfold, and the the Democrats were excited because this looked like the best issue they had, but it was interesting, and it should have been the best issue they had, uh, but it was interesting that Coolidge was so above reproach, and he handled the cleaning up of the scandal so meticulously that by the time the election came around, it really wasn't an issue. I mean, Davis later complained that it was 
uh, almost unpatriotic to attack Coolidge for the for the scandals because it had really been Harding, not uh, Harding's neglect, not Coolidge's. But so this is where uh, the, the scene was as the as the election started. But the thing I, I want to get you to uh, to think a minute about, and, and a lot of people, uh, I'd say the mod most modern readers aren't aware of this, is that from the late 1800s to the mid-20s, certainly to 1924, the two parties in the United States, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, were both involved in a very active internal, basically civil war over policy. Uh, the Democrats were the first party to nominate a progressive. They nominated William Jennings Bryan three times, but he was not elected. And the Republicans were the first party to elect a progressive. That was Teddy Roosevelt in 1904. And he was followed by Taft, who was uh, relatively progressive. And then in 1912, uh, which was really the high tide of progressivism, you had uh, Wilson and Taft and then Roosevelt running as a third party progressive candidate. And they were all vying to see who could be the heir to the progressive uh, movement. But there was, a, there was a conservative wing in both parties, in the Democratic Party and in the Republican Party, that both were pushing back on the progressive trend. And so it was unclear uh, exactly which party was going to become the progressive party. And it's interesting to, to speculate. Uh, one of the fun things about history is you can always have an opinion about what would have happened if something hadn't happened. And in 1919, Teddy Roosevelt was the leading candidate in the Republican, he'd come back into the Republican Party. He was the leading candidate to get the nomination in 1920, and he died unexpectedly at uh, a relatively young age. And had he lived, he would have probably been the nominee. Had he been the nominee, he would have probably won because it was gonna be a Republican year, looks like. And uh, Arguably, the Republican Party might well have been the the uh, progressive party, and the Democrats might have said, you know, well, we're not we're going to leave it to the Republicans. We'll let the conservative Democrats call the tune in our party. Uh, well, of course, that's not what happened. The Republican Party went to the right in 1920, uh, <clears throat> and they won a big victory with Harding and Coolidge. And so it, it teed up the, the, um, the 1924 convention, party conventions, in an interesting way. Uh, it was a real contrast. Uh, the Republican convention came first. It was in Cleveland, Ohio. And um, uh, Coolidge had only been in office for a year. Harding had been dead about a year. And uh, as a really a tribute to Coolidge's ability as a politician. He had, uh, had won the public over. He had, had gained control of the party, and the, the convention in Cleveland was uh, about as dull a convention as you could imagine. It went like clockwork. In fact, there's a, um, there's a funny quote. Let's see if I can find it. Um, yeah, Will Rogers, who was around then, said, uh, 
I've been longing to attend a convention and see the excitement and hear the shouts. Now when I finally get a chance to go to one, I draw this one. He went to the, he went to the Cleveland convention and uh, you know, they, they nominated Coolidge in record time. Um, probably the most memorable quote was one of the uh, nominating speeches uh, succinctly characterized Coolidge like this, that Coolidge never wasted any time, he never wasted any words, and he never wasted any public money. So I nominate Calvin Coolidge. That was, that was, a, that was probably a, a nomination that Coolidge um, uh, probably treasured. So the Republicans got their convention out of the way pretty quickly. The, there were some progressive Republicans led by Robert La Follette, who was from uh, Wisconsin, and he was very uh, upset over the direction of the Republican Party. And uh, as we'll see in a minute, he led a progressive movement, a progressive third party race in, in that election. But he didn't, he didn't get any traction at the convention. So we move on to the Democrats. And uh, the Democrats met in New York City. Uh, they met at the convention, uh, convened late in June. And it was scheduled to go for a week. It wound up going for three weeks. Uh, 103 ballots. Uh, it was the bitterest, most divisive convention in American history, and it's uh, it's interesting. That, and it was it was uh, illustrative of the Democratic Party at that time. The the base of the Democratic Party, the electoral base, was the South. That was the they were the states that they would get in any election. And then uh, their other big component were the big cities, uh, the, primarily the Northeast, um, where there was a lot of immigrant and Catholic votes. The, the South was uh, Protestant and uh, in favor of prohibition. The, the immigrant cities of the Northeast were uh, Catholic, uh, immigrant, uh, anti-prohibition. So there was. Uh, there, there was a real conflict going on within the Democratic <clears throat> Party, and the two major candidates were Al Smith from New York and uh, Woodrow Wilson's son-in-law, William Gibbs McAdoo, who represented the, the Southern, uh, even though he's from California, represented the, uh, the, the Southern perspective. And in addition to that, the Democrats had an old rule that required the nominee to get two-thirds of the votes. So they locked in this campaign, and I'll read you a quick quote. And the, the, the two um, hot button social issues of the day were prohibition and um, the KKK and, and racial. And it says the, um, this says the, the deadlock that developed might as well have been between the Pope and the imperial wizard of the KKK. So solidly did Catholic delegates support Smith and the Klan delegates supported McAdoo. So they fought it out. There were crosses burned in front of Madison Square Garden. The Al Smith packed the, uh, the garden with his supporters who were just yelling this deafening din. And it was, um, it was really quite a spectacle. And 
it went, John Davis was uh, a, a dark horse, sort of favorite son candidate. He was from West Virginia, but he was in New York by this time. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, somewhere around the 98th ballot, he started moving up. And the, the party finally staggered uh, to a decision on the 100 103rd ballot, and Davis was, was nominated. Um, so from there, I, I try to give you a little bit in the sequence of the book, give you a little bit of a picture of Davis and Coolidge, who the two men were, because I think this is the real takeaway from, if, if you think about the 1924 election, you, you'll get a picture of the two. And um, the, the, there's a quote on Davis, that Davis grew up in West Virginia, uh, went, came to Washington uh, as Woodrow Wilson's solicitor general, then was sent to um, the UK as Wilson's ambassador to Great Britain, uh, then came back and uh, headed up a, a major Wall Street law firm which became Davis Polk and Wardwell. And so he'd had a illustrious career and there was a quote when he was in England as a U.S. ambassador, uh, King George V said, John W. Davis is the most perfect gentleman I've ever met. That's a pretty good recommendation for a country boy from West Virginia to have um, the King of England say that about you. Um, at the time, Walter Lippmann, who was probably the leading uh, commentator in the U.S., uh, wrote a very interesting column about Davis, and I won't read all of that, but he pointed out what a contrast it was that the, that the Democratic Convention was just a cauldron of, in his words, hatred and, and vindictiveness, and <laughs> they were just fighting tooth and nail against each other, but yet somehow at the end they staggered and nominated, in Lippmann's view, one of the best candidates ever nominated for president. And um, it, uh, it, it, it really was an interesting contrast and, uh, you know, maybe gives you a little hope that sometimes out of confusion and, and turmoil, something, something good can happen. Um, so uh, Davis um, was from the conservative wing of the Democratic Party, and as I read earlier, uh, he and... Coolidge really agreed on most issues. About the only issue that, substantive issue they disagreed on was Davis was more of a free trader and Coolidge was a modest tariff guy, more of a Republican tariff uh, in favor of tariffs. But in terms of tax policy, um, government scope, um, government spending, things like that, they were very much, uh, very much in agreement um, let's see, I'm not going to be mindful of the time here. Um, so then the, the campaign started, and, well, I, I, well, let me say a word about Coolidge. Um, I think it's, it's fair to say that it was interesting to, to think of Coolidge as being president during the, the majority of the 1920s, which was... Uh, in, spite of, in spite of the economic um, uh, uptick of the 1920s, there was more social upheaval. I mean, social mores really changed the roaring 20s. 
and to think that Calvin Coolidge was the president during that is, is kind of interesting. And a number of commentators at the time wrote that, uh, you know, that, that the American public was experimenting with all kinds of new social ideas, but they found it very reassuring to have a president like Calvin Coolidge. They could experiment with all this, but they knew that the man at the till was a, you know, was a good conservative New Englander who, um, who certainly went along, or didn't go along with all that. Uh, Coolidge became famous for being a very terse, uh, silent cow. There's a famous story about the sitting next to the woman at dinner and she said, you know, my husband bet me that I can't get you to say more than two words. And he said, you lose. And uh, that was, as far as we know, that was true. Another funny one that you might not have heard, I don't know, was that uh, one Sunday, uh, Coolidge came back from church to the White House uh, went back to the White House, and Grace Coolidge, for whatever reason, hadn't gone to church. So she said to Calvin, um, well, how was church? He said, good. She said, uh, well, how was the sermon? He said, good. Uh, well, what did the preacher say? She kept persisting. He said, what did he preach on? Sin. <laughs> she finally said, well, what did he say about sin? He was against it. <laughs> So, you know, that's, it's, it's easy to see how Coolidge became known as, uh, as, as Silent Cow, but uh, I'll end with this quote on Coolidge. It says, Coolidge manifestly embodied uh, straightforward simplicity, dignity, integrity, honesty, thrift, morality, and common sense upon which America had been founded. In the he represented this in a turbulent decade. Americans found comfort in a president who espoused and and modeled these bedrock virtues. As William Allen White summed him up, caution, courage, and intellectual honesty were his simple virtues. So there you had Coolidge on one side, Davis on the other side. And um, La Follette, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, decided to run as a third party candidate because Coolidge and Davis were both so conservative. And La Follette was a Republican progressive, and he picked as his running mate uh, Senator Burton Wheeler, who was a Democrat. So you had an attempt to, uh, to pull together a fusion ticket uh, that would be progressive and would, would uh, and, and, in, and in fact, they wound up polling 17%, which was a, which was a strong showing for a third party candidate. Uh, so then the campaign started. And uh, one historian has said that Coolidge's technique was to destroy issues by ignoring them. And Coolidge was in the very strong position of the incumbent. The economy was good. Uh, he was perceived very favorably by the press and the public. And he didn't really have to respond. And uh, the, the Davis had the challenge to uh, try to get in. In fact, he said his main challenge was to get Coolidge just to say something so he could engage him in, in debate, and he was, a lot, by and large, not successful. One thing I'll mention, that uh, the KKK was a big issue in the, in the campaign, in the Democratic Party, and in, and in the Republican Party. And Davis very um, courageously, I think, spoke out early in the campaign in August, in a speech in New Jersey and condemned the Klan and called on 
Coolidge and, La, uh, and La Follette to follow suit. Well, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't do anything to exacerbate the problem. But Davis was really the only one who spoke out against the, the Klan, and it it uh, he he probably had more to lose than than any of the others. But I think in looking at this election, you can uh, we can take some comfort in the fact that the two hot button issues, the Klan and prohibition, were not. Um, neither candidate used those issues to uh, rile up the public. The public's already riled up enough about those issues, but Coolidge ignored them. And, and Davis condemned the Klan, but uh, they both on prohibition said, well, it's the law and we'll enforce it. And you know, that was sort of it. Um, in the end, uh, David, I think this is kind of funny, Davis uh, likened uh, running in 1924. He said it's, it's like being wedged in between a sphinx and a volcano. He said Coolidge was the sphinx, wouldn't say anything, and La Follette was kind of the Hubert Humphrey of his day who would you know, sound forth on any issue that came up. And uh, Davis was in the middle trying to, get, um, trying to get Coolidge to engage him and, and wasn't able to. And the result was that um, Coolidge won a big victory. Uh, I think the, the reading that I would have on it was that he was dealt a winning hand to begin with, and he played it flawlessly. He used radio for the first time, uh, and he, the Republicans at that, at that point in time had a lot more money than the Democrats. They spent the money on radio and, and some new media ideas, and it was a very effective campaign. Davis, on the other hand, was, was uh, severely outspent. Uh, he had an impossible job of trying to get Coolidge to respond and trying to unify the Democratic Party. And the result was that, that uh, Coolidge won a big victory. And that's the second takeaway on the election. The first takeaway is the quality of the two men. The second one is that I think you can really argue that the two parties as we know them today, have known them really for anybody who's my age for my whole lifetime, the Republican Party has been generally more conservative, the Democratic Party has been generally more liberal, and it goes back I think to 1924. Um, the, the liberal Republicans like La Follette began a migration out of the Republican Party into the Democratic Party. And the conservative Democrats, like John Davis, began a migration that ultimately they wound up as uh, as Republicans. David, interestingly, Davis never left the Repo uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, he supported Roosevelt in '32, but after that, he supported every Republican that ran for office. But a reporter asked him late in life, said, "Mr. Davis, are you still a Democrat?" And he said, "Yes." Damn still. So, <laughs> so, uh, the, the, the last part of the book is um, there's a chapter devoted to Coolidge, and he went on to be a very successful president in his four-year term. Uh, he and Andrew Mellon devised a, uh, an amazing tax strategy to reduce the income tax. It had been 76 or 7 percent, and they got it down to 24 percent, and the economy just blossomed. Uh, and uh, probably, one of, certainly one of the most interesting things about his term was that he voluntarily 
elected not to run for re-election. There's no question in anybody's mind that he would have been resoundingly re-elected if he had run. He was very popular, the economy was great, and it's uh, almost without precedent in American history, human history maybe, for somebody to be modest enough to say, well, his comment was, well, my father told me it was better to leave when they still want you to stay. And, you know, that's pretty good. Given what happened after the election, then I think he, he was probably right. Then the, the chapter on Davis, I think, is will be very interesting to you because most people know nothing about him. But Davis went on to, he uh, over the his career, his legal career, he argued more cases before the Supreme Court than any American. He argued 142 cases. And um, he was uh, he was known as the lawyer's lawyer. Uh, you know, they just, he actually turned down an opportunity to, to, um, to be appointed to the Supreme Court in the 20s before he ran for president. And uh, the, I'll just mention very briefly, uh, his last two cases were the Youngstown Steel case when Truman took over the steel mills in 1951. Uh, the steel companies went to Davis, who was uh, almost 80 years old at the time, still active, and said, we want you to argue this case. And he argued the case and won the case before the court, uh, which is a landmark uh, case in, in American jurisprudence. His last case was the Brown versus Board case, and he argued uh, his good friend Jimmy Burns, who was governor of, had been Roosevelt's Secretary of State, was governor of South Carolina and asked Davis to take that case, and Davis took it. Uh, and it's, it's interesting, I think it, it's one of the uh, difficulties of history these days to try to get a maybe an accurate reading. Davis was not a, would not have called himself a segregationist. He believed that segregation was on the way out and he thought in a generation it would be gone, but he thought it was a mistake for the Supreme Court, in his words, to operate like a glorified board of education, and uh, which is sort of what happened after the, after the case. The Supreme Court had to get very involved in you know, local education issues. Um, but there's a wonderful little story in, this, in the Brown versus Board case in that, uh, that Davis argued against Thurgood Marshall, and they became very good friends, and uh, Marshall tells the story that he said John Davis was the finest lawyer that he ever saw. He said when he was a student at Howard University Law School, he used to walk across to the Supreme Court and listen to Davis argue cases. And he said, I would always ask myself, will I ever be that good? And he said the answer was no, never. <laughs> so, um, anyway, I've run over. I'm afraid we don't have much time for questions, but let me, uh, let me just stop there and... If, if my wife had been here, we'd have had more time for questions. <laughs> what did Calvin Coolidge think about William uh, Wilson's League of Nations idea? Could you just repeat that for those? Yeah, the question was, what did Coolidge think of the League of Nations? Um, he was not anti-League. I, I would say he was much more like um, Henry Cabot Lodge. He was in favor of the League with the reservations that, that Lodge had put forth. And... Um, you know, they, when, when Harding and Coolidge came back in, 
the League of Nations just sort of died as, a, as an issue. The steam for joining it kind of dissipated. And uh, arguably, the U.S. pulled back some internationally during the 20s. But I think uh, it's fair to say that neither Harding nor Coolidge nor uh, Charles Evans Hughes, who was Coolidge's Secretary of State, I, I don't think... I don't think they would be classified as isolationists. They just, uh, they, they were more in fact, if they could have gotten the league adopted with, with largest reservations, but of course about Wilson wouldn't compromise and so they, they reached an impasse and uh, the issue kind of died in the 20s. But I, you know, I don't think, Coolidge certainly didn't try to resurrect it. On the other hand, he never ran as being anti-league or anti-internationalist. And Davis was, was, was more of an internationalist than, um, than Coolidge was, probably. Back in the back. Notwithstanding there are different parties, do you see parallels in terms of their personalities, their backgrounds, their temperaments between Truman and Coolidge? Uh, everybody hear that? Uh, uh, compare, contrast. Uh, Truman and Coolidge. Yeah, I think there. I think there's certainly some uh, some similarities. I mean, I think one of the one of Coolidge's appeals, uh, and the same thing could be said of Truman, was that he very transparently was who he was, and he didn't try to alter his personality or uh, didn't try to, um, you know, uh, he was in. Coolidge was incapable of small talk or backslapping or anything like that, and people respected that. Uh, and I think uh, I think the same thing could have been said for Harry Truman. I mean, he was who he was, and and people felt like when he said something, he meant it. And um, I think that's a uh, I think you can make some. Their, their politics were different. Uh, the Youngstown case, I mean, Davis was very upset with Truman taking over the steel mill. I mean, he, his heart was really in that case, and uh, his, his, his argument for the Supreme Court, I mean, Time Magazine said it was one of the most brilliant arguments ever made before the court. And um, so he was, he was not on the same wavelength with Truman politically, but I think their personalities were probably similar. One thing I'll leave you with, with that I was going to mention in here, somehow I forgot to, but uh, in, in trying to uh, leave you with a picture of the two, this might help a little bit. Uh, I think if you were going to a cocktail party, you would not want to stand next to Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> and you would love to stand next to John Davis. I mean, every, everybody loved to talk to John Davis. And uh, a similar... Uh, a uh, parallel I would draw is uh, I was at a, I was given a talk on the book um, somewhere, I don't know, at a club, country club somewhere, and uh, I said, you know, if, uh, if Davis and Coolidge had been citizens of where we were, Richmond or where we were, uh, I think I could have said this, that Davis would have been president of the club and Coolidge wouldn't have even been a member because he was too parsimonious. So, <laughs> you know, so that's a... Yeah, there are very different personalities, uh, but both, um, I think, remarkably fine, solid men that we can be proud of.
I think with that type of one, one last one, just, just quickly, okay. Carl. Um, why do you think Coolidge has been so underappreciated and underunderstood? Well, I think at least to the, the question was why is Coolidge so underappreciated? I think there are at least at least two answers to that, and maybe more. Uh, one, I think, is the fact that he was followed by the by the Depression, and there's been a tendency. Um, to blame Coolidge for the uh, for the depression, and there was until fairly recently there was a uh, a real tendency of most historians to say that uh, Roosevelt and the New Deal pulled the country out of out of the Great Depression. Uh, more recently, there have been uh, historians like Paul Johnson and Amity Schles has written several really good books on it. There's a view that uh, the New Deal and Roosevelt really turned a bad recession into the Great Depression. You know, so there's an argument among, among economists now and historians as to exactly what happened. And I think most historians and economists would agree that Coolidge really in no way caused the, uh, if he had run for re-election in 28, he would have been in a position to react to it. And I think it's fair to say that Hoover's reaction to the, to the market crash was, was different than, than Coolidge's would have been. Um, so that's one thing. Looking back, I think people have tend to say, well, you know, Coolidge couldn't have been any good because look what happened the next decade. Um, and then the second thing is, is Tied to that, I think uh, generally Coolidge's philosophy is is difficult to uh, communicate effectively politically. Coolidge did a good job while he was living, and uh, I'm reminded one of his State of the Union addresses. The Washington Post had a editorial about it, and they said that said most politicians don't talk about uh, reducing government spending and taxes in moral terms, and Coolidge really did that. I mean, he talked about how it was immoral to take taxpayers' hard-earned money and spend it on anything that wasn't absolutely necessary. And he somehow was able to communicate that. Well, you know, I think the, the what we see today is that politicians are much more likely to Anytime there's a problem or where to reassure voters, well, we'll take care of it, we'll pass a program, we'll spend money on it or whatever. And, and Coolidge uh, just, he, he was able somehow to communicate that, but uh, since his time, not many politicians have even tried to talk about government spending and, and, and national debt in terms of moral terms. And, you know, if they had been more, if they'd been more politicians who could explain it that way, then Coolidge would probably be better remembered. Uh, some of you might recall that uh, when Reagan came in as president, uh, when any president comes in, gets to put up the portraits around that he, of uh, his predecessors that he likes, and he called up the portrait of Coolidge, which probably hadn't been touched in you know, 30 or 40 years, and, and put it in the cabinet room, and the press I you know, couldn't figure out what in the world is he, what's the message he's sending, but Reagan really appreciated Coolidge and um, thought he had been underestimated as a president. Everyone, please join me in thanking you.